Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. A couple of months ago, I went to a short film festival in Cairo. I'm always just blown away by the creativity and talent of my generation, so I stuck around after for the director's Q&A. One film in particular was completely silent, and it was subtitled. The subtitles reflected the dialogue, um, both internal and external. The subtitles were actually the most intriguing part. They were in a font used almost exclusively for the printing of the Quran, at least to my knowledge, and they were complete with the punctuation associated with the printing of the Quran, in particular, the set of brackets that divides the different Quranic verses from each other. So during this q and I raised my hand and asked, what was the significance of using that font? The director, whose eyes I would describe as either listless or self-satisfied, said that his film was experimental and that the font reflected this, and that was the end of the matter. The audience, who knew the significance of this font, raised a chorus in disagreement, and a conversation broke out between us, leaving the director forgotten. Such is the importance of script. And today we're talking to someone who charts the transition of Arabic script from written to digital, taking a very, very long lens. My name is Ene Mansour, or Nadira, and welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies, part of the New Books Network. Today, my guest is J.R. Osborne, who is an assistant professor at Georgetown University in the Communication, Culture, and Technology Program, or CCT. He is co-director of CCT's Technology Design Studio. He's also a self-described experimentalist of communication. His work explores media history, design, semiotics, communication technologies, and aesthetics with a regional focus of the Middle East and Africa. His research informs his teaching of media production and graphic design. He uses the history of technology to inspire students to imagine new ways to apply digital technology. He has a PhD in communications and a certificate in ethnographic film from the University of California, San Diego. He has extensive curatorial experience and has worked on many film projects. He's also the author of a book, the subject of today's interview, Letters of Light, Arabic Script in Calligraphy, Print, and Digital Design, out 2017 from Harvard University Press. Welcome to the podcast, JR. Thank you. Yeah, um, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. No, of course. I absolutely have to express how much I love the book. I think it's such a great... I think anyone who has anything to do with Arabic should read this and just appreciate how layered the history is. Um, so congratulations on the book. It's an achievement. Thank you. Um, so I mentioned your extensive curatorial experience. You have a very, um, you have the background of both a practitioner and someone who studies this in theory. So what's your intellectual history? What, how did this particular book project come about? Well, there's kind of two answers to that. I guess there's the personal answer and the the academic answer. Uh, Generally, I, I am a practitioner. We're all practitioners of communication in our our own regard. We're communicating every day. And I think one of the great things about studying the history of communication is to inspire us or to get us to reflect on the ways we communicate, ways we used to communicate, maybe ways we can communicate again in the future. Um, And so this book in particular, as I said, had a personal history and an an academic history. The, The personal one began shortly after I graduated from my undergraduate, and I was in Istanbul teaching English. 
And Istanbul's a fantastic city because it's layered with history. And I would walk around the city and I'd see, you know, there's Greek inscriptions. There's a bunch, of course, uh, Arabic uh, inscriptions in Arabic script from the Ottoman era. And I would ask the local uh, uh, Turks, uh, unable to you know, decipher them myself at this time, what they meant. And it took me a little while to realize that uh, the citizens of Istanbul, the modern day residents, because Turkey had switched to the Latin alphabet, also didn't, um, couldn't read the Arabic inscriptions. But yet those inscriptions, like the Greek inscriptions that are older than them, remained meaningful, right? They could be read, even though they couldn't necessarily be understood linguistically. And that really fascinated me to thinking of language as a visual marker, how it operates visually different from spoken language. So that was kind of in my my, my mind for, for a number of years. When I went back to graduate school, I knew I wanted to study visual communication, but I didn't know exactly uh, where it went or what direction it was going. Um, and so that brings me to the kind of the academic uh, reason for writing Letters of Light. And in that regard, I, you know, when I started to study history of communication, we read, we read uh, uh, you know, about the printing revolution, about the rise of digital computing, all of these technological revolutions. And they're often, they, they kind of have a very long unified history um, that is European and American centric. And so I, what I wanted to do in Letters of Light was look at an equally long history, you know, from the 10th century up to the 20th century, but switch the lens to a non-Latin script, um, Arabic, which is the one I was uh, familiar with, and look at these same moments of transition. How did Arabic script go from manuscript to print? How did it, Arabic go from print to digital? And as soon as you switch the lens to a new script, you get a whole slew of different problems and some, and some problems that, that repeat themselves. And you also get a different way of looking at the history of communication, both what we've taken for granted, I think, looking um, kind of only at Western communication, um, as well as the, the challenges of spreading that kind of technological, those technological systems to other parts of the world. What I want to emphasize now is that the book is about Arabic script. It's not about Arabic per se, because Arabic script is, as you pointed out just now, is actually used for many languages that aren't specifically Arabic. Um, so Swahili is an example, Ottoman Turkish is an example, Urdu is an example, and there's, there are many, many more. So this is a very universal and global story in many senses of the word. Um, and then the problems that you just laid out, Arabic script isn't quite like English script where there are only lower and uppercase variations of the 26 letters in addition to punctuation. So when you're laying this out on a printing press, on a keyboard, you have, or trying to build code around this, you have to consider the fact that in Arabic script, there are four forms of each of the 28 letters. So there's the isolated form, there's the initial form, so the form the letter takes when it's the beginning of a word, the medial form or the form it takes when it's in the middle of the word, and then the final form. And then there are special characters for different letters when they combine. Um, and then there's the tashkil, which are the vowel sounds, because Arabic doesn't have an inherent set of vowels amongst those 28 letters. And then there's the question of where the primary line is, so where the, the letters are written. Um, are they written on a line? Are they, I mean, in English, we write on a line in some 
things go below the line, like a G, a lowercase G. But um, in Arabic, things just sort of go all over the place. Um, well, all over the place, it's not very fair, but they, they go above and below the line um, to quite a large degree, perhaps more so than English. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm trying to get at what is essential to understanding Arabic script for those who have never had the pleasure of interacting with it before? Uh, well, yes, Arabic is, as you, as you mentioned, it's incredibly wide used uh, script. Um, I, I think it is important, as you noted, to for us to remember that scripts and languages aren't hermetically sealed. Right? That Arabic script has is used for all sorts of languages that aren't Arabic, um, just like Latin script and the letters we use in the English alphabet are used for other languages. And also that those visual systems can change, Turkey being a prime example of that, switching from um, Arabic script in the Ottoman era to Latin script in the modern era. Um, and one thing about Arabic that you point out is that it's a very vibrant collection of different types of marks. Um, it's not just the letters. There's also the tashkil that, that dance around the, the base letters. There's even, as you mentioned in your opening, you know, punctuation is very um, important in these, these types of specific types of brackets and marks that kind of indicate uh, Quranic verses or special uh, special passages in, in religious settings and et cetera. Um, I think for those unfamiliar with it, there are two important things to to remember or to be aware of when considering Arabic script and its relation with ter- technology. And one is that it's necessarily cursive, that it, the letters connect to each other one after the other. Um, not every letter, there are rules that on some which connect and some, some don't, but this means that you have a continuous line rather than distinct characters. Uh, uh, distinct characters such as you know the letter A, the letter B, the letter C in Latin script being all by themselves. Um, and I, so I think this is very y- unique. This idea, as you said, that we're, we often hear then Arabic has isolated initial, medial, and final forms, I would say is actually a, a technological analysis of Arabic already to get Arabic into a, a printed mode where you can slide these letters together and maintain the semblance of a cursive script. For uh, in for calligraphic practice and scribal practice, there's no such thing as a medial form of an Arabic letter in the wild. Right, a medial form is in the middle of two other letters. So to to write that, you have to have something before it and something after it. And calligraphers in practicing the cursive structure actually didn't study these four different forms of Arabic script. They studied all the connections. How do you connect the letter ba to letter? The gene class. How do you connect it to the scene class? How do you connect that to the to the um, to the to um, uh, ha or saw all? So they would work on the connections between the letters rather than thinking of it as um, as you know isolated initial medial final. So I think one is this idea that it's cursive. The other thing that results from that is that Arabic script is multi-layered. It's spatial. It's there's the baseline of, of of letters that are connected, the the rasam, which then get um, kind of specified by nokta being placed above and below them, and then as you mentioned, there's the tashkil, which also dance above and below the line, and then in in cases, especially for the Quran, there's a whole uh, connect collection of other more specified uh, markers that that uh, indicate uh, pronunciation, cantillation, various. Um, 
various other other traits. So I think for someone less familiar with Arabic, these are the things to remember to, to notice that it connects necessarily, and this is an essential part of the script, that to break up the letters would um, would alter the flow of the script, and that it organizes itself not just in a single line, but as a spatial composition. Um, that it, it isn't just a line of one letter after another. It is characters that are placed in spatial relation. Some, some characters have to go above others. Some, um, some go below. And, and it, so it uses uh, rating space as a two-dimensional, two-dimensional space. Um, so you speak so Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, it was hopefully for, for those less familiar with Arabic, I don't know how well I do this in the book, but I, I do my best to describe some of these general characteristics. Um, as I said, the book is not only directed towards those familiar with Arabic, but also those interested in the history of communication. Um, and I hopefully do a, 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 a job of explaining some of these differences, not in order that the reader needs to understand specifically how Arabic script, but how these differences then influence the way writing interacts with different technologies as they, as the history unfolds. So in the, I do want to note that you're also part of this growing field of people who deal with um, Arabic script, who deal with, there's this wave of scholarship basically of people who look at um script and printing from an art history perspective or from a practitioner's perspective, there are new studies in terms of um, the history of paper as well and different forms of paper design. Um, so riding on this wave recently, there was a debate, um, not a debate, a blogger known as the digital orientalist um, mentioned, and, 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 and uh, the author of a recent monograph, Titus Nemeth, they, they exchanged views more or less. I'm really not sure of the direction of these views or whether or not they're, it's, it's unidirectional or not, such as the nature of the internet. But there was this conversation about the aesthetics, the aesthetic of Arabic print. So I, I mean, part of this conversation was, it just hinged around the point that, to put it very basically, that 19th century Arabic print, which is basically the, the, the century when Arabic printing takes hold and when um, books are printed in Arabic for the first time um, using printing presses or lithographic presses, um, that that print, particularly of printing presses, not necessarily lithographic texts, um, that those were ugly. <laughs> so my question to you is, should what we read be pretty? Is that is that an essential aspect of how we communicate? Uh, well, I would maybe reframe the question a little bit and say that what we read should be communicative. Uh, and it sh we should communicate in as many channels as, as we can to try to um, present the, you know, the, the specific meaning we're, we're, we're aiming for. Um, and in this regard, I, I think the focus on on aesthetics is whether it's pretty or not pretty takes away from that um, commutative reading of saying that the way things look are themselves apart from what they're saying, communicating something. Again, your opening um, opening story about the f subtitles shows this, um, that it was the appearance of the font and specifically these kind of bracketed characters that were communicating something apart from whether or not you thought that font was was pretty or or or, or beautiful. 
Um, and so that that discussion, I think the way to go at this is rather than to, to, to have an ideal of, of, of beautiful script versus practical script, but to reinvestigate the way that changing the image of script, the way that different styles of script, the way that different appearances of script, different colors of script, different materials that they're written on can communicate in different, in different ways. Um, There's, I think one, one way to, to, um, to, to think about this as well. What's so interesting about that debate, of course, is that there's those, they're saying, well, you know, Arabic script, printed Arabic script was, was 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 ugly it just was information it couldn't communicate couldn't compare to the beauty of manuscript design and calligraphic script and that's much easier to read but yet this entire debate uh, as you as you pointed out is on the digital orientalist's blog it's being conducted on a digital platform right so the the comparisons are actually showing digital images of printed material and manuscript material which demonstrates that digital technology itself can actually demonstrate, can represent both of these, right? It, the question is what gets coded and how does it get coded? And uh, I, I would say that's the a second thing we could take from this debate is that this discussion of pretty versus text information versus, versus aesthetics is something that we've tended to divide. I th- partially because of the technologies we we use that images were taken out of text in in movable type printing and illustrations were something separate from from the the textual component now we have different file uh file uh, extensions for digital images versus text files and we tend to think of images whether they're illustrations or digital images that's the realm of aesthetics and prettiness and we tend to think of text as being just a string of in- information. And one of the things that this debate gets us back to is to say those are two sides of the same coin, right? Written text is always visual. There's always some aesthetic component that's communicating. And that you know what we think of as images themselves are, are written in many ways, right? They're designing, they're designing space. So I don't know if I answered the, the question on whether it should be pretty, but I think it the, a way to go around that question is to consider how we are communicating uh, not only in, with the letters and characters we choose, but also the way those letters are dressed says a lot about what the message is. I completely agree. And I, I, I don't want to necessarily um, – speak negatively of other disciplines, but I am speaking as a historian and someone who uses early printed materials. And I just find them so refreshingly experimental and they're trying out new fonts for headings from time to time. They're looking at how they can use space more economically. I mean, that's another consideration is when you're printing something, you're using a resource that costs quite a lot of money as is with paper. Um, but we need to take that into consideration. And then also the fact that, you know, certain things were meant, we're trying to draw on the calligraphic tradition to communicate certain things to readers as well. Um, it, it's, 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 it's a very muddled soup, so to speak. And I think to think about whether or not it's aesthetically pretty forgets that it, there are just so many other things that readers were taking into consideration. Um, 
So one thing I love, yes. Yeah, well, I was exactly. And I, you know, just to give a few examples that readers of when we think of now calligraphy as verse printed, calligraphy tends to kind of collapse all manuscript to kind of beautiful writing, right? And then we get this yeah. idea: well, this is much prettier than 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 printed versions or digital versions. But when we begin to look at scribal traditions, and I think this is true for m- many scribal traditions, and especially true in the uh, Arabic uh, scribal tradition, and especially the, the Ottoman practice, is that styles of script communicated very specific things. Uh, there, are certain, they, there are certain styles that were only used for, uh, for, the, for the Quran. There were certain styles of, of script that were used, diwani, that was used primarily and exclusively for uh, pronouncements of the Ottoman Ottoman uh, port. There are other styles that, that communicated the Persian-influenced poetry, you know, the, what's now known as the, the Talik or, or, or Farsi script. So these different scripts, the genre of them or the appearance of them signified genres in very uh, useful and communicative ways. Uh, one of the examples I, I give my, my students if I'm trying to explain this is I say that currently we have newspapers and they're organized spatially. Right, we have the sports page, so we have the entertainment pages, we have the business pages, the front page, etc. Um, but imagine if rather than organizing things spatially, we had all the news kind of mixed together, but we differentiated it by font. So sports was in Helvetica, and maybe entertainment was you know Comic Sans, and uh, business was written in, in Palatino, a Times New Roman. And then if we scan the page, and I wanted to know, for example, who won the World Cup. I could search for Helvetica Bold, and that would be it. Right? And so in, and that's a very different way of organizing information, but is equally effective. Um, and I think that's a lot of what was happening in the, the scribal practice is using styles of script to indicate genres, to c- classify and order the textual information that you can scroll through um, – manuscripts and by depending on the script you get a sense of where it's from what it might be talking about who may have have issued it and and what role it was playing in society actually it's funny you say that it's exactly the same process i go through when i look at a newspaper because i mostly work on newspapers and um what you end up having especially with newspapers that are sort of trying to get their bearings is a lot of experimentation of like well should this be in a different font and the 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 largest um i think the most common binary is that there's a different font for ads and there's a different font for sort of the main text but another thing i've been finding and i mentioned those quranic brackets is that for um, ethical literature, which you get a lot of newspapers sort of in the form of, I think the best way to describe it to an English reader, English speaking reader, primarily English speaking reader is it's, it's similar to editorials. And a lot of this uses those brackets. I talked about the Quranic brackets, um, which I find really interesting. Yeah. And it's very indicative of a certain time in printing. And I mean, and you also mentioned about the book, and this is what I love about the book is you're very good at drawing on examples that the reader would know. So you very much talk about sort of the Times New Roman of the Islam or the Arabic speaking, the Arabic script world, um, which we'll get to in a bit. And I, I, you have these little terms of phrases that make it very communicable to someone. And as you mentioned this before, someone who's not familiar with Arabic scripts, who comes from either communication studies or who's a general audience reader and not strictly an academic. Um, and another way you accomplish this is you speak so lovingly 
of the Arabic script, and, and you've done this already several times, you, you speak about sort of the tashkil or the, the hodua for the, the letters dancing on the medial line. And then, of course, the book is titled Letters of Light. And I was wondering if you could sort of spoil me with what exactly inspired that title, Letters of Light. Uh, well, that the title is, it's a little bit of a, both of a pun, um, but it also is meant to uh, encompass the, the the scope of the book. Um, I don't know. In talking with people, I don't know if that's always uh, communicated or understood. But the book, as I said, it's it's a very long duration history, and it covers ten centuries, um, beginning from the tenth century with the formation of proportion script Al Khat Al Mansub, uh, and goes up until the twentieth and beginning of the twenty first century with Arabic script on computers and how Arabic interacts with with the Unicode digital encoding standard. Um, so it's a very long, long history. And one of the things I wanted to to point out with letters of, of light is that letters have always had this sense of of portraying text. They are they are illuminating, right? You read something and we say that it is it is illuminating. The the idea of the enlightenment in the in, in Europe was the idea that we are starting to lighten our knowledge. The in Arabic specifically, letters themselves are under or understood um, or have the connotations of having a divine light as well. That these are the the letters um, especially the Quran, through which the light of, of Allah shines. So there's that metaphorical aspect that letters, you know, project light. And if you go then, skip forward 10 centuries now to the 21st century, when we are dealing with digital devices, when we are looking at our computer screens and our screens on our mobile phones, we are now to the point where the letters themselves actually are composed of light, right? I'm not looking at printed ink on paper when I read on a computer screen. I am actually having light shown at me that my letters are now physically and materially composed of light. So I wanted to um, to bring those two ideas of, of light together, the kind of that, that letters are enlightening, but now in our digital age, letters have become made of light. No, I really enjoyed that. I thought that tied it together very well. And I think that, I think it's a risky, it's a very risky um, decision to cover over 10 centuries. Um, but you did it very well. And I think you did it in a way that, I think you made great choices in terms of um, narrowing your focus. And one of them is this focus on Al-Khattal Mansur, which you mentioned just now. And I was wondering if you could break it down a little further to us, as, as well as the idea of nest. Yeah, so Akhato Mansub, uh, which is a proportion script, was a system that was developed around the 10th century. It's attributed to uh, Vizier uh, Ibn Mukhla. Um, whether he specified everything or not, is, there's, a, there's a lot of debate. But it is a system of um, determining the script based upon proportions. So starting with the the nukta, which is the, the, the note or the point of placing the reed pen to paper, gives you a point. Then you, you stack these points on top of each other. You get to, you get, you can make a, establish the, the height of the alif, the first um, uh, letter in the Arabic alphabet, which is a, a line segment. So you have the point, then you have the line. And then from that line segment, there's a circle that in which the, the line segment is the, the diameter. So now you have 
point, line, and plane in the circle. And these are three elements that are common in graphic design practice um, that are that are used in graphic design practice in order to design things, point, line, and plane. So what and, and we still see some of the the ramifications of this in the way we talk about fonts now, right? We talk about fonts, we measure them in point sizes, right? And so what Al-Khataman Sub was, it was a manuscript, um, uh, a system for manuscript production in which styles of script receive specific proportions. They received specific geometry. So something like Nash, uh, which I, I occasionally refer to as the Times New Roman of the of the Arabic world, um, because it was a general use script. Uh, it is uh, it is it's it gets it's five nukta tends to be five nukta tall. Uh, Thuluth is is seven, and and these these um, these different proportions lead to different shaped letters, um, and then the. And as I say, the flow of the line, the dance of the line has a slightly different, different appearance. So it's a geometric system to specify styles of script. And then once you can recognize these differences in the styles of script, they, those scripts become useful, as I said, as classificatory tools of saying these type of script with these proportions will be used for this type of content, this type of script for this type of portion, um, with these proportions will be used for this other type of content. So it becomes useful in that way as a geometry on 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 one on on, on one hand. And but also then it contributes to this what we now understand as calligraphic art, because there's now a geometric basis for the for the drawing of 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 letters, the writing or drawing of letters, and that can be bent or played with as as an as aesthetic form as well, in order to create what we now think of as these really rich calligraphic com- compositions, um, that that aren't uh, that are both visual and and textual at the same time. I have this memory that just hit me right now of being taught how to write in Arabic in the first grade, and the notebooks we had were special for you know teaching kids script. And they had, as you as as you you noted, the dots on the side so that we could see the proportion of the letters. And I remember struggling with it so much because it, I just could never get my proportions right. And now that I can write a little bit more fluidly as an adult, I mean, I don't know if I write as fluidly as I would hope in any language, but I can sort of see the effects of having had that drilled into me as I write. Um, and I'm, I don't think it's ever quite proportional, but there is that system that sort of does come down to me. Um, as you speak also, I'm sort of struck by the fact that as I read the book, I really came to think of the script or the multiple scripts um, that you uh, discuss as characters, but there's another cast of characters, so to speak. And that's the people who create these these words, these letters, and form each generation of script. So they're scribes, and then they're printers, and then they're the coders in our current day and age um, that also form another set of principal characters, so to speak. So how did each generation or each category of character affect the production of Arabic script? Uh, well, I like the... Um... I, I like the idea of the scripts or the styles of script themselves being being characters, and I and I and I um, 
thank you for saying that because I, I tried to play with that also. Um, you know, as I was as I was writing the the book, I thought of the the letters themselves as my my main characters. Um, and what I then what I wanted to do with the characters in the more prosaic sense, as you say, the people who work with these, the scribes, the printers, the the coders, those digital designers, um, is to then see how they use these these other characters, the written characters, in relation to the um, to the technologies, and and having a large historical scope gave me some ability uh, to kind of kind of move back and forth across the the the. the the time periods, and I do this often, as you as you you mentioned, the, the Times New Roman of, of Arabic, um, Nash, using things that we that using terms that we now uh, use to discuss graphic design and writing, and then looking at them in in retrospect. Uh, I, one of the chapters I'm, I'm uh, very proud of is the end of uh, the second chapter. I talk about. Ottoman scribal practice using the the terminology and design decisions that are advised for contemporary graphic designers and typographers. Right, first consider the text, then find a font that that's appropriate to that text. Consider the ramifications of that font. Decide how it's going to be um, laid out on the page. How are you going to use different fonts to distinguish different types of elements? As you said, headlines versus captions. And so I use these guidelines, which are often given for contemporary graphic designers, and applied them to the process of, of scribal production, saying that this is scribal production uh, was doing many of these same types of the same type of work, making these same type of decisions. Right? You'd get a text. What is the appropriate style of script in which this script should be written? Right. If that if it's written in there, is there a family or is there a related script that should be used for headings, you know, um, and and for titles, um, and so again, trying to break down that idea that the that it's handwriting and manuscript production wasn't just handwriting. There also were styles that were being used for communicative um, intent. Um, kind of more generally, I I think what. When, as you go through these different transitions from manuscript to print to digital, uh, and and what are these new generations bringing to it, is that it's always useful in communication history to remember that every time we get a new technology, there's a communication revolution, as the the phrase is, is uh, goes, is that there's things that are both gained as well as lost, and being able to then remember that or be be reminded of what is lost and ask, is there a way we want to regain this again? So printing, for example, was incredibly powerful as a, as a uh, historically, right? For, for multiplying the number of texts that could be distributed, for giving everyone similar texts that they could read across wide spaces. And the effects of print have been, you know, well, well documented. But at the same time, what was lost in this case was that ability to was that scribal variety that to make multi typeset in, in multiple styles of script was incredibly difficult. Um, it, you know, movable, so movable type tended to standardize um, texts in, in one, one style. You know, now that we have digital computer computing and, and multiple fonts, we again have the uh, ability to switch between these fonts and use them for communicative purposes, right? Should we? Will we start to do that? Will it become kind of more ingrained or develop the kind of 
um, cultural and genre connotations that were pra- that were present in the the Ottoman practice. I don't know, but but it's possible for us. And I think coders are the same way. I think the digital revolution has certainly expanded our ability to communicate visually, um, both both. I think in terms of time, both very quickly and also in terms of spatial organization, the way that we can, the facility with which we can bring in images and fonts and overlay them and and have them have them have them interacting. Um, and so, in that sense, it's more open, but it's also can it's, can be a little bit more limiting in the sense that I, you know, I can go through an entire. <laughs> on my computer, I can scroll through the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of font choices I have and, and spend an entire you know, hour deciding like, is this the perfect font for what I want? Is this the perfect font for what I want? Um, and, and I think that's very useful and it's a fun exercise to do for anyone who, <laughs> who, who hasn't done it. Just see how the, the, our writing changes with select different fonts. But at the same time, then there's a question of that, is that, is that the decision to be made or is that also a, a dis- when we face with so many choices, is that also a distraction? What is the level that we should be making our, our intervention, right? Should we be having more fonts so we can communicate with them? Should we be looking at how, how those, uh, the coding is actually encoded the, the characters um, and, 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 and what, what, how the fonts are being designed? Should we promote different, a different type of, of, of software, right, and say that oh, we should be d- using design platforms rather than something like Google Docs or Microsoft um, Microsoft Word. Um, so I think uh, what what we have now is as new as each new generation comes to Arabic script, it's a it's the question of what are the technologies available to us and what can each of those technologies do and and what do they do well and what do they um, and what do they do not so well? In the hope uh, for me that when we talk about visual and written communication, it's not just one or the other, right? That in our day and age now, there is there are books that are still physically printed. There are there are calligraphers and scribes scribing um, incredibly beautiful pieces, and there's uh, digital communication that's that's sharing this, and so that. We think of all three of these as technologies that can fulfill different uh, communicative roles with, within our um, yeah within our current um, digital and communicative moment. Yeah, it's it's something that just first off, I really appreciate the fact that you talk about what we gain and what we lose because as a as a historian, I think about what we. Um, I think in terms of rupture and continuity, but you're both a historian and you're also a communication specialist. So you have this other, this other design aspect to it of of what can we, it's a functioning tool. Script is a functioning tool. So you've recasted in a way that I'm going to have to think about for a while. So I really appreciate that. Um, So to take us back another step back to print, which is my favorite topic, of course, of all the topics that you discuss in your book or all of the sort of phases in your book. Um, this is a very controversial question in the field of Middle Eastern history, in the field of the history of Arabic or Arabic script. Why did it take so long to get Arabs or Arabic speakers to print regularly, and specifically why the Ottomans didn't print? Because there were there was the capability to print Arabic 
before, quote unquote, what many call the Arabic print revolution, which is another very controversial topic. So I'm just throwing like five controversies at you. So forgive me. Well, this is uh, no, no I, I, I love it. That's part of why I, I wrote the book as I, as I did. I, one of the reasons I wanted to take such a long historical lens, again, is that when we don't um, expand it, we tend to take the, the models of communication and history we have, which, as I mentioned, are often drawn from European and American context, and then apply them to other cultural contexts, right? So we hear these, uh, I, I think there's a few examples of this with looking at Arabic script and, and uh, Arabic is, Islamic culture, right? There, we hear that um, there was a ban of, of images in Islam and therefore calligraphy developed as an art form. And that's a, a, con, a contention that's not really held up. Um, it's a much more nuanced discussion to be going in there. We So we, and then we hear again that, you know, printing was such, such had such drastic effects in Europe, so it wasn't applied in in um, in, the, in the Middle East or adopted by for Arabic or by the Ottomans. So we're always asking if these types of that type of intellectual question is why why it wasn't the Middle East like Europe, right? Why why? And I think a better way for for or a better model for intercultural dialogue is to look and say this is a tradition that does something very different from us. What can we learn from that tradition, right? That here's a tradition that that combines um, imagery and text in a, um, in a beautiful aesthetic and artistic ways, right? That's, that there's something we can learn there, that both text and drawings are both, and, and figurative imagery are both visual compositions, right? They're both on the same plane. And I think the same question of asking why it took Arabic or, or why it, Arabic took so long to get to print, um, we can ask, well, why not, not, not to think that the, the Ottomans were slow in adopting print, but asking what were they doing, doing instead, right? I mean, print, Arabic was printed fairly, fairly quickly within a hundred years of, of, uh, of Gutenberg. There were styles of, of, of movable type in Arabic that mimicked cursive script to, to all, um, for for all, um, uh, I or, or adequately enough, right? That that mimicked Arabic script, and I, I, I um, so to to ask why why it took so long for the Ottomans, I I, I try or I or I I'd like to suggest kind of flipping that on its on its head, um, and I'll I'll start again with another, uh analogy, uh, kind of common, uh, current analogy, and then I'll work backwards from there, is that, you know, for 15 years now, maybe even 20 years, um, if I wanted the latest um, Hollywood blockbuster on DVD in, in many parts of the world, right, in, uh, in Nairobi or someplace in parts of um, Southeast Asia, I could go down to the corner and I could buy a, a, a copy of this, right? We'd um, on, on, on DVD, um, I those are often you know referred to as pirated copies. If I wanted to get that same Hollywood blockbuster here in in the U.S., I would have to wait a good number of months before it was released through official channels. I couldn't get it the same the same week it was released in the movie theater, and that's not a result of 
the technology. The technology, digital technology, is perfectly capable of copying and, and distributing these these movies, you know, instantaneously. That's a result of a certain um, a certain set of laws, a certain set of um, certain understanding about marketing of of films and the the laws that protect that intellectual property that they roll out in the movie theater, then they play in the movie theater for a while, then they're later released released to streaming and DVD. And so the it's a question of the textual or information entertainment system in which those products are located rather than the technology themselves. But to make an argument to say, well, I could get a copy in other parts of the world and I can't get a copy in the U.S., why is the U.S. so anti-digital technology? Sounds preposterous. Um, and, 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 and it's not – and why it sounds preposterous is because we're not thinking about the, this in relation to the technology. We're thinking about it in relation to the U.S. kind of you know, copyright laws and, and its system, which, which works and has worked for Hollywood for, for a number of years. And so hopefully the, the analogy isn't lost when we now bring it back to the Ottoman period. And I would say that's a similar thing that happened with print. The Ottomans had a very robust uh, scribal system, you know, with multiple styles of script, indicating different types of genres, indicating um, different routes of authority that were read as markers of uh, and, and the styles of script were read as markers of authority and um, and 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 origin, and it was working very well for the Ottomans. Right, the 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 um, the it was very similar time period right in the, the um, in the middle of the uh, 15th century when Gutenberg first printed his the the Bible and the Ottoman conquest of uh, Istanbul or Constantinople, which became. Istanbul, right? So the Ottomans were ascendant, and they had a textual system which was very, uh, which was working very well, which managed the information across their expanding lands, and they didn't necessarily see a reason, I would say, to to change that. Um, Europe, in contrast, at this time, was in in retreat, and um, the, there's a lot of studies about early printing. Um, succeeding because it was able that, that there there was a, a number of piracy. There was the ability for printers to escape local regulations. That there wasn't a central authority, and we see all the the effects of printing, which we now look at very positively, were fairly disruptive. Right, the the church came under. Um, came under um, challenge. There were multiple different vernaculars and centers of intellectual power that were combating each other. Print led to kind of regional wars in this regard. It was an incredibly disruptive technology. And I think the Ottomans may be looking at that um, and saying, well, we have a system that works. What is the, the, um, is, what is the use of us of us adopting this technology, which seems to have had such a disruptive role in 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 Europe, um, and then so that, so that's I think part of the the story. So the earliest printing in Ottoman lands was in 1495 with the the. Uh, Jewish population, after being expelled from Andalusia, brought some equipment with them um, and began printing very, very quickly. You know, this is less than um, 
less than 50 years after Gutenberg's um, experiments with movable type. So in Ottoman Istanbul, there was incredibly vibrant Hebrew printing community. There was incredibly vibrant Armenian printing community. There was a Greek printing community. And so printing was known. It just wasn't adopted by uh, the Ottomans themselves, and it wasn't adopted for Arabic script. So that's a, it's a huge, um, I mean, there's a, there's a mystery or, or, or wonderful um, historical discussion and debate on, on why this, this was the case. And I would say there's two ways to kind of, or two things I would like to add to this discussion. And one would be to say, well, the first is that the Ottomans themselves had a very um, uh, useful and very robust scribal system, which was serving their needs quite adequately. They were the dominant power at the time. So therefore, I thought there, from their perspective, there's reasons to preserve that. Um, it didn't seem to be, um, it didn't seem to be be hindering them in terms of information processing or political power. Um, the other thing I would add is that once the Ottomans did begin to print, um, which was in the 17, um, 1720s with Ibrahim Mutaferika, um, at this time, I also wouldn't say it was necessarily delayed printing. True that it's now a few uh, centuries, about almost um, two, um, two to two and a half centuries after after Gutenberg began printing, but it's not delayed if you, in comparison to other state presses in Europe. Um, sh- we, right around the same time um, is when we get the national, uh, Imprimeur National in France with their specifically designed um, uh, font um, or uh, typeface, the Roman du Roi, which, speci- which was used to identify things that were printed specifically by the state as an answer to this um, to the problem of of readers being unable to distinguish what was being officially authorized by the state and what was coming from other printers. Um, around the beginning of the same period, I think it's 1710 or so, is when the Statute of Anne was adopted in the um, Great Britain, which is often given as one of the precursors of what's become known now as copyright law. So it was around the, um, the early 18th century when print was formalized into a new textual system. And this is the time in which Ottomans then began printing. So in that sense, I would say that they weren't delayed in their adoption of print as a, as especially as a state apparatus. They were actually concurrent with Europe's adoption um, with print as a, as, a, as a state apparatus. What they, what they didn't adopt was when print was still on kind of this experimental um, stage of and hadn't been um, formalized into a new textual system of of legal oversights and intellectual uh, intellectual pro- uh, protections, um, and I think that's really it's 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 useful to think about the technologies then in regard to how they're serving the in this case, the Ottoman state or, or European states, rather than just what they're capable of doing. And that's what the, the DVD example um, shows us. Um, I think one another thing that could be learned from this is that even when the Ottomans began printing in uh, the 1720s, they were mostly printing secular documents. The first things that were Ottomans began printing in Arabic were maps and then dictionaries, military histories, official histories, geographic tomes, things that weren't available on the manuscript market, right? The Quran wasn't printed for 
another um, another hundred years um, in by by Ottoman Ottoman presses, right? Which then leads us to question again these stories of printing that are taken from the European side, where there's such great emphasis is placed upon the printing of the Gutenberg Bible, and we can start to ask, well. Act- why is it that we assume that a, a religious text should be the first thing printed, right? A religious text is, is the most sacred document of a, of a tradition. It's, there's reasons to that it should be the last thing printed after all these kind of kinks and, and the new technology has been, have been ironed out so that we know that it's going to be represented and presented in the specific, in a particular way. So uh, I think looking at the, the Ottoman um, transition to, to print is, helps us re-ask that question of why did it take so long to print and not ask in a way of why were the Ottomans kind of falling behind Europe. But again, in that way of saying, at the time, what was it the Ottomans were doing that was in their mind seen as more useful or maybe superior to the European um, textual system. And, and that's why, uh, and that, that can give us some answers on why manuscript, um, ma- manuscript technologies or manuscript production and scribal production persisted as long as that did. And there's much we can learn from that. As I, if we think about the, again, the DVD example in our current age, that when we're, as we develop new technologies at an increasingly faster rate, how much of those technologies or how we're using those technologies are, we're using them to their full capability or how much are we kind of constraining some of these new technologies based upon systems that uh, we have grown accustomed to in the, in the past. And it's the systems that are, that we're more beholden to than the technological possibilities. So we're going to jump forward another sort of phase, so to speak. Um, so you gave us, you mentioned several points um, during this conversation, but it's also a, a, a pretty big element in the book. Um, there's the precedent of Turkish script reform. So basically Ottoman used to be written in Ottoman Turkish um, until the beginning of the Turkish Republic, more or less, was always written in Arabic script. And I've been told by multiple Turkish teachers that, that Arabic was just inappropriate for Ottoman Turkish. This is a huge sort of ideological contention um, is that it was just inappropriate. Thus it was um English, not English, excuse me, Latin script was used. Um, it was introduced by the first president of the Republic, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk. Um, and that also has many ideological underpinnings. And we've seen, multi- I've seen multiple attempts at Arabic script reform for the Arabic language. And there was, the most recent that I thought was really interesting was a combination of Hebrew and Arabic script involving the corresponding letters because the letters do correspond through Hebrew and Arabic largely. Um but I'd say Arabic script reform, and, and there's one example in the book of uh, unified Arabic, which just struck me as really bizarre, just because it it deals with all of the isolated letters. It's been unsuccessful. Is there a specific reason why we we, we haven't exactly been able to reform the script, or there's no need to? I mean, what's your take on this? Uh, well, I... Go back again and say that now we tend to think of languages and scripts as uh, two sides of the same coin. I, her, hermetically 
sealed, right? That this is the best script for representing Turkish, and this is the best script for representing English, and this is the best script for representing Arabic. And that wasn't always the case. Um, er, that you know, Arabic has been used for many lang- Arabic scripts. It's been used for lang- multiple languages other than Arabic, and for um, uh, you know, for centuries it was used for for, for Turkish and a, and a variety of other languages. Um, and so languages aren't tied always to a specific script, and those scripts can change. This t- happened in Turkey. It's happened in a number of the former um, Soviet um, republics where they switched their scripts from you know, Turkish scripts that were once written in, in Arabic being switched to Cyrillic and now being switched to, to Latin. And so those the choice of script isn't – it's always, I think, argued in relation to the way it represents the language. But I think there's always – other connotations that that are accompany these scripts. Um, the fact that for the Turks, Latin script gave, aligned them with Europe, gave a sense of modernity, promoted a, a sense of um, of of modernity. It was, I think, equally important as wh- how Latin represents represented the sounds of Turkish, and it does represent the sounds slightly different than the way Arabic script um, represents the, the sounds. Um, so, but I think another thing to, um, maybe to, to back up again, I think one of the reasons the book, um, people have asked me this, why there's such a strong focus on on Turkey, um, even though it's dealing ostensibly with Arabic script. And one of the reasons I, I look at Turkey uh, in the book and, and it forms such a big part of the story is because the Ottomans were, on one hand, in charge of much of the Middle East, um, politically and administratively, during the early uh, uh, centuries of print, which we discussed. And then also there's this very interesting case that once the Ottomans uh, kind of lost power, modern Turkey switched to another script. So Turkey has this entire trajectory of, on one hand, kind of, again, in the early days of printing, we see it as resisting technology. And then when it becomes modern Turkey, Turkey um, um, borrowing or, or choosing a new script partially in line of how well that Latin script dealt with um, communication technologies at the time. So um, to kind of contextualize a little bit about Turkish script reform, first, this wasn't a uh, – unique thing to Turkey at the time, right? There was a number of, of, of scripts and script reform movements being done um, during the, the early and, and mid part of the 20th century for languages of, of from Korean to Chinese. We see in the mid 20th century is when Chinese pinyin kind of develops. There are also attempts to simplify Greek and, and, and Hebrew, and as well as simplify Arabic in, in other parts of the Arabic world. So this was a discussion being had at the time, which I think now isn't as much of a, of a cultural or international discussion on, on what are the scripts that should be associated with languages. Now we, again, we assume that those are kind of given. One reason I think it, it succeeded in Turkey is because Turkey enacted this as a national reform and Turkey um, had Turkey then said Latin script is the is a script that can best represent the Turkish language, and they instituted it as a, a, a as a Turkish uh, reform for modern Turkey. This is much more difficult when we look at Arabic 
as a language more broadly. Because Arabic is a language that, of course, there are various uh, dialectical differences, but the, is a language and the script itself are used across a very wide range of, of countries. Um, so again, even to, to leave out kind of um, Iran and, and, and Pakistan, where it's used to represent languages like um, Farsi and, 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 and Urdu, but even if we just stick to the Arabic case, that in order to do it equally, um, to have an equally successful script reform of adopting something like Latin would have in, entailed in many ways uh, the coalition of many countries, many of the Arabic-speaking countries agreeing to, to um, come together and all adopt this at the same time. So that was, was a much more it would have been a much larger international and multinational uh, uh, project. But again, I, I think, but that's only part of the story. I think a larger reason on why script reform, at least in the mid 20th century, wasn't adopted for Arabic is because scripts do communicate by the way they look. And for the Turks, Tur- modern Turkey, by chose Latin, Choose Latin script. They wanted to align with Europe. It was very symbolic of Europe and modernity. And they and for the modern Turks, they saw Arabic script in the Ottoman past as a legacy of the past that had that had kind of decreased uh, Turkish Turkish glory. So they saw they they wanted to align themselves with Europe rather than rather than the the Middle East and, and Arabic script. For Arabic countries, at the same time, however, Arabic script was it was also seen as anti-Turkish. That it was it was anti-colonial because it was an Arabic script. It was a it was a symbol of former Arabic glory. It was related. It was the the proper script that was developed with the Arabic language. And in this sense, it had unlike in in Turkey in many of the Arabic lands, it had a national connotation and a historical connotation as being um, as being you know, pre-colonial and, and, and anti-colonial. So again, it's the visual qualities of the script and the connotations of what the scripts mean that are equally important for these decisions on script reform as they are, um, as it is just the linguistic arguments that tend to be forwarded by those who, who want to enact them. I mentioned earlier that um, your description, or maybe I mentioned this before the interview, but your description of the switch to digital we're getting closer to the present. It's something I actually remember. And I remember just sort of, and I still to this day, you know, certain word processors can't really deal with Arabic script, but you laid down a very good user's guide to sort of typing in Arabic digitally or creating digital Arabic text. And of course, smartphones have changed everything as well. Um, I remember there was a time when my friends would text me using Latin script in, um, to spell out Arabic because there just wasn't the capabilities. Um, and now increasingly more people are typing using Arabic script because a smartphone has made it so much easier to do. Um, but anyway, the book does a very good job at explaining what happens when Arabic script goes digital and the problems because the system was developed in a sort of Western European American context, an English speaking context uh, using Latin based script. So what happens with Arabic's trajectory in the era of digital script? Um, so I, yeah, the example you gave is a, is a wonderful one. You know, that now increasingly, and, and, and I, and I, 
I really love this fact and, and celebrate it, that we can have a variety of scripts on all of our devices, right? But even this isn't uh, is, is fairly new development, right? During the Arab Arab Spring, much much of the texting that was happening was in in Arabizi, was using Latin characters to imply Arabic, and this wasn't some kind of create. This was, I think, a very creative technical adaptation. But the reason this was done wasn't because the youth wanted were making a comment that, oh, we don't like Arabic script in kind of the, the Turkish reform sense. It was because the technologies at that time only supported Latin text. And so they had to find a way to, to use those visual symbols in order to communicate Arabic. So Arabic, again, I think, or non-Latin scripts more broadly, came later to the to the digital platforms that if we look back at those kind of straw man arguments of, of Western communication history that I like to kind of bounce my work off of, you know, there's these key moments. There's the Gutenberg printing of the Bible and what that meant and why wasn't, uh, why didn't the Ottomans do that? And then we get for, for the digital com- um, component, we get the birth of ASCII, of the American standard code for information interchange. Um, which coded Latin letters to specific bits and uh, sequences of, of bits and bytes. Um, and then that gets expanded to, to other scripts and other, other languages. But again, that's a, a, a technology that was developed for um, American English and then gets expanded and adapted to, to other um, categories. Um, that ASCII, what it does, it, it actually remediates uh, the model, I would say, of movable type, where movable type has every single character, every letter is its individual box, and then you slide those boxes, those 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 that type together on a line to get a line of script. And this is a very much very similar to the way that most uh, text rendering works on our computers. It it has a code, a digital code. It looks that up. It gets a little picture, and then it puts it in line, then it gets the next code and it slides those pictures in line um, so that we, it spells a word, right? That for example, my name, it would get the, the picture for O, then S, then B, then O, then R, then N, and all together, that would that would form the word that my name, Osborne. Um, so this is, again, that's very similar to how movable type worked. And then if we say, well, Arabic lost a lot in its transition to movable type, then it's going to continue to to have lost that if this is the model that gets re, repurposed for for digital computing. So these um, uh, things, some of the things we talked about at the beginning, the ability of the Arabic baseline to kind of dance to go up and down, the ability for cursive letters to connect vertically from the top and from the bottom as well as from side to side. All of this was ve- is very hard to do with with even the the text rendering engines we use we use currently, um, and it, and so the, these problems continue to 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 recirculate in the digital era. Um, just one um, example of 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 this for for Arabic specifically, and kind of relating it back to Al Khat Al Mansub. Arabic has uh, you know standard kind of twenty eight letters. Um, and a few that people have, you know, questions. Perhaps a few, a few more. But these letters are broken into very classes: uh, the ba class, the sin class, the jim class. In which the base letter has a similar form 
and it has a similar form because of all kapal mansub. They have the same geometry. And then they're differentiated by the nokta being placed above or below the line. So be is the ba class with the with the nukta below, te with two nukta above, the, etc. Um, pe, the, the, the P sound in, in Persian, be modifying this with, with three um, nukta uh, uh, below. So when, some, when you get something like Unicoder, which is based upon ASCII, it encodes every letter separately. So it includes A, B, C, D for Latin alphabet. For Arabic, it's Alif, Be, Te, Tha, Jim, as it, you know, all the various, various letters. Um, they each get their own code. Um, and then it does the same thing. It looks up the Arabic, the code of the Arabic letter, and it strings them together in a line. Um, this works in order to represent it, but what it means, which is really interesting, is that there's no way within Unicode to determine all, of, for example, the letters, uh, the Arabic letters that are in a uh, similar class. There's no marker in Unicode that, for example, that has Jim, um, Jim, Pa, and Cha, all as as letters in a similar the Jim class of letters. There's no there's there's nothing that indicates Ba, Ta, and the as being variations of the Ba class with just Nokta um, Nokta differentiations. Um, and the reason that isn't in, in, isn't encoded is because in the Latin alphabet. I would I would say the reason it's not encoded is that the Latin alphabet doesn't have classes of letters. In the Latin alphabet, they are distinct letters, but all the letters are just distinct in their own 26 ways. Even though there are some visual similarities, those aren't seen as as semantically uh, relevant or as important. Um, so when you bring in Arabic and just focus on the the analytic level is the level of the the letter, then you you rather than something smaller than the letter, in this case, the class of letter and the nokta, you end up losing um, uh, some semantic information in the way it gets encoded. That you can't search through a, a text and find, for example, all of the, all of the letters of a single class um, without saying, oh, I want to look for this letter and this letter and this letter. Um, I, I, I don't, maybe I went on a bit of a tangent. I don't know if that was the, the question about the digital adoption, but I think that's an example of, of again, thinking of how we get technologies designed for one script or one language. When we apply them to another, we always have to kind of ask, not only what are we gaining by expanding the system, and I think Unicode is, is fantastic to explain global communication, but also is there something being lost and should we work uh, or consider ways to regain that in, in today's uh, digital moment. Yeah, I think that's actually a really great example. And I think that's one of the questions that a lot of people who it's funny with different waves of technology, I think people have had different, and you notice in the book, there's this whole um, conversation about a competition um, to change the Arabic script um, in the mid 20th century um, and, and what to do with Arabic script. Uh, and I think that this hits exactly at that because, I mean, I, I occasionally just generally think about where we were 15 years ago and where we're going to be in 15 years. And I can't even imagine what technologies are to come. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult when also 
the way you think about these technologies are being developed in certain areas with very different considerations. And there are shifting axes and poles of, 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 of uh, sort of technological hubs, but there is a shift, uh, but there is a certain hegemony. And, and as you mentioned, it, if, if, if a system is developed for Latin-based script, it's not going to take into consideration the fact that there are classes as in Arabic. And it's funny, I never actually quite thought of it like that. The fact that there's a team and a high and they look the same. I think it's just been so long since I actually sat down and thought about it that way um, until I encountered your work. So it's funny because as we've gone through this, something that does strike me is that we've talked a lot about how technology changes things, but the Arabic script is still very durable. Like you take a manuscript and you take something that I type on my phone, on my smartphone, and they do look, I mean, maybe the font on my smartphone is a little weird, but like they do look to some extent similar. You also do still have those different phases that you talked about, sort of where you add the dots and where you add, um, where you add the uh, vowel sounds, the tashkid. So what do you think accounts for the, do you think the Arabic script is durable? What accounts for its durability? Well, I think it's yeah, it's it's been incredibly durable, just um, you know, by virtue of, of its of its of its history, and um, I think there's a f- few kind of things, at least in, in studying Arabic. What, what's so fascinating about it is its its durability is shown in the way that it's adapted to so many not only new technologies but so many different roles. Right, the Arabic script is remains to be an, it, it remains uh, the one of the few sacred scripts that's still used also on a daily basis for secular and and everyday profane purposes so it's sacred it's secular it's been uh, celebrated as an art form it's also been used as it for textual uh, writing right so it's it's it has religious connotations in the way that it unites the Isl- global islamic community as a symbol of islam that but at the same time it has national connotations in the way that it differentiates um it differentiates for example the arab countries from especially now turkey and the way that styles of arabic differentiate for example the arabic countries from I- iran so it's been it's been incredibly durable in the sense that it has persisted in all these roles, often at the same time, through um, through uh, variations of in, in its its visual visual appearance. Uh, so I think that's something to uh, to um, learn from in terms of its durability. The other thing is because it's layered, is that it can express a very wide range of nuance if that's the the right word that there are you know the arabic can be just the the rasim letters just the uh rasim and the nokta the the consonants which is how it often appears if necessary the vowels can be added um the tashkil markings for vocalization can be added for those uh for educational purposes for or for other purposes then if necessary there is mentioned these special characters for uh for Quranic uh, uh, recitation and pronunciation. So there's various layers of specificity that this single script can can provide. And that's an, an incredibly powerful. Um, I think to go back to that discussion between uh, the digital orientalist and Titus Namath, uh, I think part of that discussion about the fact that printed Arabic is less beautiful than manuscript Arabic is because uh, scribal Arabic with these various layers can 
condense so much information in a in a uh, smaller amount of of of, of space. Um, because there there can be Tashkil marks above and below the line. There can be these other marks, Arabic. Um, but the cursive line can be condensed. So if you look at manuscript and scribal productions, part of what they're oh, part of, I think, when people say they're more beautiful, is that they're actually the letters are much tighter together and actually give more information per um, you know per inch or per per centimeter than the printed versions. And so that's what they're they're commenting on is that they're saying this is actually in the same amount of space. It's doing more more work. Right. That um, in this, you know, if we wanted to add vocalization, we don't need to to increase the space it's taking up. We just need to kind of add little, you know, the the, the feta and the dhamma around the the, the forms. Um, so you can you can layer a lot of lay uh, layer, a lot of layers of information um, within a, within a, 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 a smaller a, a smaller bit of space, and I think that's a very incredibly powerful visual communication. Even now, is in terms of graphic design and um, interface design, and you know, the importance of screen space, and and the questions of resolution of how much information can we fit onto a onto a screen. Um, you, we we can see that Arabic by layering additional marks over the main characters had suggestions for doing this much earlier uh much earlier than than or you know hundreds of uh years before computers arrived on the screen so i think the durability of arabic is shown in its ability to adapt to so many different uses whether those are secular sacred profane national aesthetic textual you know, information base, as well as the things that can teach us today about design and the ability of a script to remain, on the one hand, open to these different roles and visually malleable enough that it can perform those multiple roles. That the Arabic script can, you know, be used for newspapers um, without all of the markings and effectively communicate the the news of the day at the same time that same script with additional markings can be used to render the quran and preserve the quran in in exact specificity and so a, a script that can do both of those from kind of the general to the specifics is an incredibly powerful visual tool oh, that's a lovely I just, again, I love the way you discuss the Arabic script. It is really with, oftentimes I think what you look for in academic work is work with soul. And I definitely feel like the book has that. It has quite a lot of soul and love and appreciation of the Arabic language. And I real, Arabic script, sorry. Um, and I really appreciated that. And I really hope that this book is received well um, amongst both communication specialists. But I also think, like I said, this is really essential reading for anyone who has anything to do, who reads sources in Arabic, who... Um, has any who, who who regularly deals with the Arabic script on a frequent basis? So congratulations on the book. Thank you again. Um, so to close the interview, what are you what are you currently working on? Sort of, can you give us a little bit of a tease? Uh, well, I as I we said at the very beginning, I consider myself as equally an experimentalist of communication. I do that a lot with my students here at CCT. Um, I kind of curate. Um, shows for we, in our, our galleries and museums. And so a lot of my own work is a tr trying to 
to introduce these ideas to students and then to see how they can apply them um, to digital products and in interesting ways. So we've been doing, I, I oversee a lot of kind of experimental design work with my students in which we try to ask what would these historical practices look like in a, in a digital medium. Um, along that line, I've also been then studying um, the uh, curatorial practice. Um, I have a, a, a book that I'm co-authoring with uh, Benetta Jules-Rosette at University of California, San Diego, called African Art Reframed, um, uh, uh, which looks at African art museums and and plays a similar role as, as Letters of Light in kind of looking at – kind of having a comparative analysis of what does African art mean in a museum to look back at museum practice very broadly. So on one sense, I'm kind of expanding into uh, kind of museum practice and, and uh, th- those types of aesthetics. In terms of Arabic script, uh, I'm the next project uh, I'll be uh, kind of embarking upon uh, with the you as well, hopefully, is this uh, the, our colleague uh, Natalia Sout discovered this memo by Muhammad Nadim, who is one of the judges of the Arabic script reform competition that we had alluded to uh, um, a few a few questions back. Um, she discovered this in the uh, Darul Qutub archives. It was un, it was uncatalogued, um, and we're now working on a project to. Uh, to transcribe it, translate it, and then to collect a number of uh, critical articles looking at what the Muhammad Nadim's memo has to say about, first of all, the technology of Arabic script, as well as the cultural moment, how that relates to printing in Egypt. And that's an incredibly exciting um, project because primary documents uh, from the uh, from the Middle East about this – the the Arabic script reform in this competition are incredibly rare. There are very few studies of the the competition that um, I know of that have looked into the specifics of the documents and internal communications. So that's a, a um, I'm looking forward to uh, working on that project. It's a wonderful complement to Letters of Light, which Letters of Light gives a very long kind of contextual history of Arabic and how we arrived at the digital moment, and now being able to take those lessons from looking at that long history as a model to go back and study specific primary documents is incredibly exciting. And especially this document by um, Muhammad Nadim, as I said, who was a judge for the Arabic script reform um, competition, and will hopefully give us some insight uh, and some answers to the question you asked on, on why it wasn't as successful in the Arabic world when it had been a success in the Turkish context. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm really excited about that. It gave me this just wind of this, this, this fresh burst of energy. When I was working in Cairo a couple of months ago, I went to the archives at the Language Academy, the Academy of Arabic Language, to do some work on this. And the material I found was really exciting. And the memo itself is just so reflective and tells you so much about how – I mean, I think the categories with which people see themselves is a really useful way of – portraying that history. So I'm really excited about this particular project. And I think it'll be, um, I think also the, the variety of perspectives that you and Natalia are trying to gather um, will really result in a fruitful project. So best of luck. I'm really excited to continue working with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, exactly. I think also just looking at primary document like this to get the, the terminology that was being used by a 
printer and and in the in Egypt at this time? How did he talk about these? Because I mean, one of the things that was really uh, interesting to me in Letters of Light um, was realizing that coming from a, a Latin script bias, there's actually a a certain um, dearth of vocabulary we have. There was a lot of discussions with my editors in terms of what how how to define what I was talking about. That what does script mean? which usually means like Latin script versus Arabic script versus Hebrew script. And then I was also using script to talk about different types of Arabic script, Nash, um, you know, Talik, Diwani. And so we had to specify that terminology, right? Styles of script we use for internal Arabic script, script for larger notational systems. Um, so being able to look at a, a, a primary document like this and find out as well as how is the terminology being discussed um, by practitioners themselves at that time is incredibly useful. And I think it'd be very useful for communication scholars who are then looking at these uh, and looking at these things historically as well as in contemporary practice. So yeah, I'm very excited about this. Yeah, we'll see it hopefully in the next couple of years. Well, anyway, thank you so much for spending this time with me and best of luck. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. My pleasure.